Section 2 of The Negro Problem This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White The Negro Problem Section 2 The Talented Tenth By Professor W. E. Burkhart Du Bois a strong plea for the higher education of the negro which those who are interested in the future of the freedom cannot afford to ignore professor du bois produces ample evidence to prove conclusively the truth of his statement that to attempt to establish any sort of a system of common and industrial school training without first providing for the higher training of the very best teachers is simply throwing your money to the winds the negro race like all races is going to be saved by its exceptional men the problem of education then among negroes must first of all deal with the talented tenth it is the problem of developing the best of this race that they may guide the mass away from the contamination and death of the worst in their own and other races now the training of men is a difficult and intricate task its technique is a matter for educational experts but its object is for the vision of seers if we make money the object of man training we shall develop money makers but not necessarily men if we make technical skill the object of education we may possess artisans but not in nature men men we shall have only as we make manhood the object of the work of the schools intelligence broad sympathy knowledge of the world that was and is and of the relation of men to it this is the curriculum of that higher education which must underlie true life on this foundation we may build breadwinning skill of hand and quickness of brain with never a fear lest the child and man mistake the means of living for the object of life if this be true and who can deny it three tasks lay before me first to show from the past that the talented tenth as they have risen among american negroes have been worthy of leadership secondly to show how these men may be educated and developed and thirdly to show their relation to the negro problem you misjudge us because you do not know us from the very first it has been the educated and intelligent of the negro people that have led and elevated the mass and the sole obstacles that nullified and retarded their efforts were slavery and race prejudice for what is slavery but the legalized survival of the unfit and the nullification of the work of natural internal leadership negro leadership therefore sought from the first to rid the race of this awful incubus that it might make way for natural selection and the survival of the fittest in colonial days came phyllis wheatley and paul cuffey striving against the bars of prejudice and benjamin banneker the almanac maker voiced their longings when he said to thomas jefferson i freely and cheerfully acknowledge that i am of the african race and in color which is natural to them of the deepest dye and it is under a sense of the most profound gratitude to the supreme ruler of the universe that i now confess to you that i am not under that state of tyrannical thraldom and inhuman captivity to which too many of my brethren are doomed but that i have abundantly tasted of the fruition of those blessings which proceed from that free and unequalled liberty with which you are favored and which i hope you will willingly allow 
you have mercifully received from the immediate hand of that being from whom proceedeth every good and perfect gift suffer me to recall to your mind that time in which the arms of the british crown were exerted with every powerful effort in order to reduce you to a state of servitude look back i entreat you on the variety of dangers to which you were exposed reflect on that period in which every human aid appeared unavailable and in which even hope and fortitude wore the aspect of inability to the conflict and you cannot but be led to a serious and grateful sense of your miraculous and providential preservation you cannot but acknowledge that the present freedom and tranquillity which you enjoy you have mercifully received and that a peculiar blessing of heaven this sir was a time when you clearly saw into the injustice of a state of slavery and in which you had just apprehensions of the horrors of its condition it was then that your abhorrence thereof was so excited that you publicly held forth this true and invaluable doctrine which is worthy to be recorded and remembered in all succeeding ages we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed with certain inalienable rights and that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness then came dr james durham who could tell even the learned dr rush something of medicine and lemuel haynes to whom middlebury college gave an honorary a m in eighteen o four these and others we may call the revolutionary group of distinguished negroes they were persons of marked ability leaders of a talented tenth standing conspicuously among the best of their time they strove by word and deed to save the color line from becoming the line between the bond and free but all they could do was nullified by eli whitney and the curse of gold so they passed into forgetfulness but their spirit did not wholly die here and there in the early part of the century came other exceptional men some were natural sons of unnatural fathers and were given often a liberal training and thus a race of educated mulattoes sprang up to plead for black men's rights there was ira aldridge whom all europe loved to honor there was that voice crying in the wilderness david walker and saying i declare it does appear to me as though some nations think god is asleep or that he made the africans for nothing else but to dig their mines and work their farms or they cannot believe history sacred or profane i ask every man who has a heart and is blessed with the privilege of believing is not god a god of justice to all his creatures do you say he is then if he gives peace and tranquillity to tyrants and permits them to keep our fathers our mothers ourselves and our children in eternal ignorance and wretchedness to support them and their families would he be to us a god of justice i ask o ye christians who hold us and our children in the most abject ignorance and degradation that ever a people were afflicted with since the world began i say if god gives you peace and tranquillity and suffers you thus to go on afflicting us and our children who have never given you the least provocation would he be to us a god of justice if you will allow that we are men who feel for each other does not the blood of our fathers and of us their children cry aloud to the lord of sabbath against you for the cruelties and murders with which you have and do continue to afflict us 
This was the wild voice that first aroused Southern legislators in 1829 to the terrors of abolitionism. In 1831 there met that first Negro convention in Philadelphia, at which the world gaped curiously, but which bravely attacked the problems of race and slavery, crying out against the persecution, and declaring that laws as cruel in themselves as they were unconstitutional and unjust, have in many places been enacted against our poor, unfriended, and unoffending brethren, without a shadow of provocation on our part at whose bare recital the very savage draws himself up for fear of contagion, looks noble, and prides himself because he bears not the name of Christian. Side by side, this free Negro movement and the movement of abolition strove until they merged into one strong stream. Too little notice has been taken of the work which the talented tenth among Negroes took in the great abolition crusade. From the very day that a Philadelphia colored man became the first subscriber to Garrison's Liberator, to the day when Negro soldiers made the Emancipation Proclamation possible, black leaders worked shoulder to shoulder with white men in a movement, the success of which would have been impossible without them. There was Purvis and Remond, Pennington and Highland Garnett, Sojourner Truth and Alexander Crummel, and above all, Frederick Douglass what would the abolition movement have been without them they stood as living examples of the possibilities of the negro race their own hard experiences and well-wrought culture said silently more than all the drawn periods of orators they were the men who made american slavery impossible as maria weston chapman once said from the school of anti-slavery agitation a throng of authors, editors, lawyers, orators, and accomplished gentlemen of color have taken their degree. It has equally implanted hopes and aspirations, noble thoughts and sublime purposes in the hearts of both races. It has prepared the white man for the freedom of the black man, and it has made the black man scorn the thought of enslavement, as does a white man, as far as its influence has extended. Strengthen that noble influence before its organization the country only saw here and there in slavery some faithful cujo or dinah whose strong natures blossomed even in bondage like a fine plant beneath a heavy stone now under the elevating and cherishing influence of the american anti-slavery society the colored race like the white furnishes corinthian capitals for the noblest temples where were these black abolitionists trained some, like Frederick Douglass, were self-trained, but yet trained liberally. Others, like Alexander Crummel and McCune Smith, graduated from famous foreign universities. Most of them rose up through the colored schools of New York and Philadelphia and Boston, taught by college-bred men like Russworm of Dartmouth and college-bred white men like Neu and Benezet. After emancipation came a new group of educated and gifted leaders, Langston, Bruce, and Elliot, Greener, Williams, and Payne. Through political organization, historical and polemic writing, and moral regeneration, these men strove to uplift their people. It is the fashion of today to sneer at them and to say that with freedom, Negro leadership should have begun at the plow and not in the Senate. A foolish and mischievous lie. Two hundred and fifty years that black serf toiled at the plough, and yet that toiling was in vain, 
till the Senate passed the war amendments, and two hundred and fifty years more the half-free serf of today may toil at his plough. But unless he have political rights and righteously guarded civic status, he will still remain the poverty-stricken and ignorant plaything of rascals that he now is. This all sane men know, even if they dare not say it. And so we come to the present, a day of cowardice and vacillation, of strident wide-voiced wrong and faint-hearted compromise, of double-faced dallying with truth and right. Who are today guiding the work of the Negro people? The exceptions, of course, and yet, so sure as this talented tenth is pointed out, the blind worshippers of the average cry out in alarm. These are exceptions. Look here at death, disease, and crime. These are the happy rule. Of course they are the rule, because a silly nation made them the rule, because for three long centuries this people lynched Negroes who dared to be brave, raped black women who dared to be virtuous, crushed dark-hued youth who dared to be ambitious, and encouraged and made to flourish servility and lewdness and apathy. But not even this was able to crush all manhood and chastity and aspiration from black folk. A saving remnant continually survives and persists, continually aspires, continually shows itself in thrift and ability and character. Exceptional, it is to be sure, but this is the chiefest promise. It shows the capability of Negro blood, the promise of black men. Do Americans ever stop to reflect that there are in this land a million men of Negro blood, well-educated, owners of homes, against the honor of whose womanhood no breath was ever raised, whose men occupy positions of trust and usefulness, and who, judged by any standard, have reached the full measure of the best type of modern European culture. Is it fair? Is it decent? Is it Christian to ignore these facts of the Negro problem, to belittle such aspiration, to nullify such leadership? and seek to crush these people back into the mass out of which by toil and travail they and their fathers have raised themselves. Can the masses of the Negro people be in any possible way more quickly raised than by the effort and example of this aristocracy of talent and character? Was there ever a nation on God's fair earth civilized from the bottom upward? Never. It is, ever was, and ever will be, from the top downward that culture filters. The talented tenth rises and pulls all that are worth the saving up to their vantage ground. This is the history of human progress. And the two historic mistakes which have hindered that progress were the thinking first that no more could ever rise save the few already risen, or second, that it would better the unrisen to pull the risen down. How then shall the leaders of a struggling people be trained, and the hands of the risen few strengthened? There can be but one answer. The best and most capable of their youth must be schooled in the colleges and universities of the land. We will not quarrel as to just what the university of the Negro should teach, or how it should teach it. I willingly admit that each soul and each race soul needs its own peculiar curriculum. But this is true. A university is a human invention for the transmission of knowledge and culture from generation to generation, through the training of quick minds and pure hearts, and for this work 
no other human invention will suffice, not even trade and industrial schools. All men cannot go to college, but some men must. Every isolated group or nation must have its yeast, must have for the talented few centers of training where men are not so mystified and befuddled by the hard and necessary toil of earning a living as to have no aims higher than their bellies and no god greater than gold this is true training and thus in the beginning were the favored sons of the freedmen trained out of the colleges of the north came after the blood of war ware cravath chase andrews bumstead and spence to build the foundations of knowledge and civilization in the black south where ought they to have begun to build at the bottom of course quibbles the mole with his eyes in the earth ay truly at the bottom at the very bottom at the bottom of knowledge down in the very depths of knowledge there where the roots of justice strike into the lowest soil of truth and so they did begin they founded colleges and up from the colleges shot normal schools and out from the normal schools went teachers and around the normal teachers clustered other teachers to teach the public schools the college trained in greek latin and mathematics two thousand men and these men trained full fifty thousand others in morals and manners and they in turn taught thrift and the alphabet to nine millions of men who today hold three hundred million dollars of property it was a miracle the most wonderful peace battle of the nineteenth century and yet today men smile at it and in fine superiority tell us that it was all a strange mistake that a proper way to found a system of education is first to gather the children and buy them spelling books and hose afterward men may look about for teachers if haply they may find them or again they would teach men work but as for life why what is work to do with life they ask vacantly was the work of these college founders successful did it stand the test of time did the college graduates with all their fine theories of life really live are they useful men helping to civilize and elevate their less fortunate fellows let us see omitting all institutions which have not actually graduated students from a college course there are today in the united states thirty-four institutions giving something above high school training to negroes and designed especially for this race three of these were established in border states before the war thirteen were planted by the freedmen's bureau in the years eighteen sixty four to eighteen sixty nine nine were established between eighteen seventy and eighteen eighty by various church bodies five were established after eighteen eighty one by negro churches and four are state institutions supported by united states agricultural funds in most cases the college departments are small adjuncts to high and common school work as a matter of fact six institutions atlanta fisk howard shaw wilberforce and leland are the important negro colleges so far as actual work and number of students are concerned in all these institutions seven hundred and fifty negro college students are enrolled in grade the best of these colleges are about a year behind the smaller new england colleges and a typical curriculum is that of atlanta university 
Here, students from the grammar grades after a three years high school course take a college course of 136 weeks. One fourth of this time is given to Latin and Greek, one fifth to English and modern languages, one sixth to history and social science, one seventh to natural science, one eighth to mathematics, and one eighth to philosophy and pedagogy. In addition to these students in the South, Negroes have attended northern colleges for many years. As early as 1826, one was graduated from Bowdoin College, and from that time till today, nearly every year has seen, elsewhere, other such graduates. They have, of course, met much color prejudice. Fifty years ago, very few colleges would admit them at all. Even today, no Negro has ever been admitted to Princeton, and at some other leading institutions, they are rather endured than encouraged. Oberlin was the great pioneer in the work of blotting out the color line in colleges, and has more Negro graduates by far than any other northern college. The total number of Negro college graduates up to 1899, several of the graduates of that year not being reported, was as follows. Before 1876, Negro colleges 137, white colleges 75, 1875 to 80, Negro colleges 143, white colleges 22, 1880 to 85, Negro colleges 250, white colleges 31, 1885 to 90, Negro colleges 413, white colleges 43, 1890 to 95, Negro colleges 465, white colleges 66, 1896 to 99, Negro colleges 475, white colleges 88. Class unknown, Negro colleges 57, white colleges 64. Total, Negro colleges 1914, white colleges 390. Of these graduates, 2,079 were men and 252 were women. 50% of northern-born college men come south to work among the masses of their people, at a sacrifice which few people realize. Nearly 90% of the southern-born graduates, instead of seeking that personal freedom and broader intellectual atmosphere which their training has led them, in some degree, to conceive, stay and labor and wait in the midst of their black neighbors and relatives. The most interesting question, and in many respects the crucial question to be asked concerning college-bred Negroes, is, do they earn a living? It has been intimated more than once that the higher training of Negroes has resulted in sending into the world of work men who could find nothing to do suitable to their talents. Now and then there comes a rumor of a colored college man working at menial service, etc. Fortunately, returns as to occupations of college-bred Negroes gathered by the Atlanta Conference are quite full, nearly 60% of the total number of graduates. This enables us to reach fairly certain conclusions as to the occupations of all college-bred Negroes. Of 1,312 persons reported, there were teachers, 53.4%, clergymen, 16.8%, physicians, etc., 6.3%, students, 5.6%, lawyers, 4.7%, in government service, 4%, in business, 3.6%, farmers and artisans, 2.7%, editors, secretaries and clerks, 
Miscellaneous, 0.5%. Over half are teachers, a sixth are preachers, another sixth are students and professional men. Over 6% are farmers, artisans, and merchants, and 4% are in government service. In detail, the occupations are as follows. Occupations of college-bred men. Teachers, presidents and deans, 19. Teacher of music, 7. Professors, principals, and teachers, 675. Total, 701. Clergymen. Bishop, 1. Chaplains, U.S. Army, 2. Missionaries, 9. Presiding elders, 12. Preachers, 197. Total, 221. Physicians. Doctors of medicine, 76. Druggist, 4. Dentist, 3. Total, 83. Students, 74. Lawyers, 62. Civil service. U.S. Minister Plenipotentiary, 1. U.S. Consul, 1. U.S. Deputy Collector, 1. U.S. Gauger, 1. U.S. Postmasters, 2. U.S. Clerks, 44. State Civil Service, 2. City Civil Service, 1. Total, 53. Businessmen. Merchants, etc., 30. Managers, 13. Real Estate Dealers, 4. Total, 47. Farmers, 26. Clerks and Secretaries. Secretaries of National Societies, 7. Clerks, etc., 15. Total, 22. Artisans, 9. Editors, 9. Miscellaneous, 5. These figures illustrate vividly the function of the college-bred Negro. He is, as he ought to be, the group leader, the man who sets the ideals of the community where he lives, directs its thoughts, and heads its social movements. It need hardly be argued that the Negro people need social leadership more than most groups that they have no traditions to fall back upon, no long-established customs, no strong family ties, no well-defined social classes. All these things must be slowly and painfully evolved. The preacher was, even before the war, the group leader of the Negroes, and the church their greatest social institution. Naturally, this preacher was ignorant and often immoral, and the problem of replacing the older type by better-educated men has been a difficult one both by direct work and by direct influence on other preachers and on congregations the college-bred preacher has an opportunity for reformatory work and moral inspiration the value of which cannot be overestimated it has however been in the furnishing of teachers that the negro college has found its peculiar function few persons realize how vast a work how mighty a revolution has been thus accomplished to furnish five millions and more of ignorant people with teachers of their own race and blood in one generation was not only a very difficult undertaking but a very important one in that it placed before the eyes of almost every negro child an attainable ideal it brought the masses of the blacks in contact with modern civilization made black men the leaders of their communities and trainers of the new generation in this work college-bred negroes were first teachers and then teachers of teachers and here it is that the broad culture of college work has been of peculiar value knowledge of life and its wider meaning has been the point of the negro's deepest ignorance and the sending out of teachers whose training has not been simply for breadwinning but also for human culture has been of inestimable value in the training of these men 
In earlier years, the two occupations of preacher and teacher were practically the only ones open to the black college graduate. Of later years, a larger diversity of life among his people has opened new avenues of employment. Nor have these college men been paupers and spendthrifts. 557 college-bred Negroes owned in 1899 $1,342,862.50 worth of real estate assessed value, or $2,411 per family. The real value of the total accumulations of the whole group is perhaps about $10 million, or $5,000 apiece. Pitiful, is it not? Beside the fortunes of oil kings and steel trusts. But after all, is the fortune of the millionaire the only stamp of true and successful living? Alas, it is, with many. And there's the rub. The problem of training the Negro is today immensely complicated by the fact that the whole question of the efficiency and appropriateness of our present systems of education for any kind of child is a matter of active debate, in which final settlement seems still afar off. Consequently, it often happens that persons arguing for or against certain systems of education for Negroes have these controversies in mind and miss the real question at issue. The main question, so far as the Southern Negro is concerned, is what, under the present circumstance, must a system of education do in order to raise the Negro as quickly as possible in the scale of civilization? The answer to this question seems to me clear. It must strengthen the Negro's character, increase his knowledge, and teach him to earn a living. Now, it goes without saying that it is hard to do all these things simultaneously or suddenly, and that at the same time it will not do to give all the attention to one and neglect the others. We could give black boys trades, but that alone will not civilize a race of ex-slaves. We might simply increase their knowledge of the world, but this would not necessarily make them wish to use this knowledge honestly. We might seek to strengthen character and purpose, but to what end if this people have nothing to eat or to wear? A system of education is not one thing, nor does it have a single definite object, nor is it a mere matter of schools. Education is that whole system of human training within and without the schoolhouse walls, which molds and develops men. If then we start out to train an ignorant and unskilled people with a heritage of bad habits, our system of training must set before itself two great aims, the one dealing with knowledge and character the other part seeking to give the child the technical knowledge necessary for him to earn a living under the present circumstances. These objects are accomplished in part by the opening of the common schools on the one and of the industrial schools on the other, but only in part, for there must also be trained those who are to teach these schools, men and women of knowledge and culture and technical skill who understand modern civilization and have the training and aptitude to impart it to the children under them. There must be teachers and teachers of teachers, and to attempt to establish any sort of a system of common and industrial school training without first, and I say first advisedly, without first providing for the higher training of the very best teachers, is simply throwing your money to the winds. Schoolhouses do not teach themselves. Piles of brick and mortar and machinery do not send out men. It is the trained, living human soul, cultivated and strengthened by long study and thought, 
that breathes the real breath of life into boys and girls and makes them human whether they be black or white greek russian or american nothing in these latter days has so dampened the faith of thinking negroes in recent educational movements as the fact that such movements have been accompanied by ridicule and denouncement and decrying of those very institutions of higher training which made the negro public school possible and make the negro industrial schools thinkable it was fisk atlanta howard and Strait, those colleges born of the faith and sacrifice of the abolitionists that placed in the black schools of the south the thirty thousand teachers and more which some who depreciate the work of these higher schools are using to teach their own new experiments if hampton tuskegee and the hundred other industrial schools prove in the future to be as successful as they deserve to be then their success in training black artisans for the south will be due primarily to the white colleges of the north and the black colleges of the south which train the teachers who today conduct these institutions there was a time when the american people believed pretty devoutly that a log of wood with a boy at one end and mark hopkins at the other represented the highest ideal of human training but in these eager days it would seem that we have changed all that and think it necessary to add a couple of sawmills and a hammer to this outfit and at a pinch to dispense with the services of mark hopkins i would not deny or for a moment seem to deny the paramount necessity of teaching the negro to work and to work steadily and skillfully or seem to depreciate in the slightest degree the important part industrial schools must play in the accomplishment of these ends but i do say and insist upon it that it is industrialism drunk with its vision of success to imagine that its own work can be accomplished without providing for the training of broadly cultured men and women to teach its own teachers and to teach the teachers of the public schools but i have already said that human education is not simply a matter of schools it is much more a matter of family and group life the training of one's home of one's daily companions of one's social class now the black boy of the south moves in a black world a world with its own leaders its own thoughts its own ideals in this world he gets by far the larger part of his life training and through the eyes of this dark world he peers into the veiled world beyond who guides and determines the education which he receives in his world his teachers here are the group leaders of the negro people the physicians and clergymen the trained fathers and mothers the influential and forceful men about him of all kinds here it is if at all that the culture of the surrounding world trickles through and is handed on by the graduates of the higher schools can such culture training of group leaders be neglected can we afford to ignore it do you think that if the leaders of thought among negroes are not trained and educated thinkers that they will have no leaders on the contrary a hundred half-trained demagogues will still hold the places they so largely occupy now and hundreds of vociferous busybodies will multiply you have no choice either you must furnish this race from within its own ranks with thoughtful men of trained leadership or you must suffer the evil consequences of a headless misguided rabble i am an earnest advocate of manual training and trade teaching for black boys and for white boys too 
i believe that next to the founding of negro colleges the most valuable addition to negro education since the war has been industrial training for black boys nevertheless i insist that the object of all true education is not to make men carpenters it is to make carpenters men there are two means of making the carpenter a man each equally important the first is to give the group and community in which he works liberally trained teachers and leaders to teach him and his family what life means the second is to give him sufficient intelligence and technical skill to make him an efficient workman the first object demands the negro college and college-bred men not a quantity of such colleges but a few of excellent quality not too many college-bred men but enough to leaven the lump to inspire the masses to raise the talented tenth to leadership the second object demands a good system of common schools well taught conveniently located and properly equipped the sixth atlantic conference truly said in 1901 we call the attention of the nation to the fact that less than one million of the three million negro children of school age are at present regularly attending school and these attend a session which lasts only a few months we are today deliberately rearing millions of our citizens in ignorance and at the same time limiting the rights of citizenship by educational qualifications this is unjust half the black youth of the land have no opportunities open to them for learning to read write and cipher in the discussion as to the proper training of negro children after they leave the public schools we have forgotten that they are not yet decently provided with public schools propositions are beginning to be made in the south to reduce the already meager school facilities of negroes we congratulate the south on resisting as much as it has this pressure and on the many millions it has spent on negro education but it is only fair to point out that negro taxes and the negro's share of the income from indirect taxes and endowments have fully repaid this expenditure so that the negro public school system has not in all probability cost the white taxpayers a single cent since the war this is not fair negro schools should be a public burden since they are a public benefit the negro has the right to demand good common school training at the hands of the states and the nation since by their fault he is not in position to pay for this himself what is the chief need for the building up of the negro public school in the south the negro race in the south needs teachers today above all else this is the concurrent testimony of all who know the situation for the supply of this great demand two things are needed institutions of higher education and money for schoolhouses and salaries it is usually assumed that a hundred or more institutions for negro training are today turning out so many teachers and college-bred men that the race is threatened with an oversupply this is sheer nonsense there are today less than three thousand living negro college graduates in the united states and less than a thousand negroes in college moreover in the one hundred sixty four schools for negroes ninety-five per cent of their students are doing elementary and secondary work work which should be done in the public schools over half the remaining two thousand one hundred fifty seven students are taking high school studies the mass of so-called normal schools for the negro 
are simply doing elementary common school work, or at most high school work, with a little instruction in methods. The Negro colleges and the postgraduate courses at other institutions are the only agencies for the broader and more careful training of teachers. The work of these institutions is hampered for lack of funds. It is getting increasingly difficult to get funds for training teachers in the best modern methods, and yet all over the South, from state superintendents, county officials, city boards, and school principals, comes the wail, We need teachers! and teachers must be trained. As the fairest-minded of all white Southerners, Atticus G. Haygood once said, the defects of colored teachers are so great as to create an urgent necessity for training better ones. Their excellencies and their successes are sufficient to justify the best hopes of success in the effort, and to vindicate the judgment of those who make large investments of money and service to give to colored students opportunity for thoroughly preparing themselves for the work of teaching children of their people. The truth of this has been strikingly shown in the marked improvement of white teachers in the South. Twenty years ago, the rank and file of white public school teachers were not as good as the Negro teachers, but they, by scholarships and good salaries, have been encouraged to thorough, normal, and collegiate preparation, while the Negro teachers have been discouraged by starvation wages and the idea that any training will do for a black teacher. If carpenters are needed, it is well and good to train men as carpenters. But to train men as carpenters and then set them to teaching is wasteful and criminal, and to train men as teachers and then refuse them living wages, unless they become carpenters, is rank nonsense. The United States Commissioner of Education says in his report for 1900, for comparison between the white and colored enrollment in secondary and higher education, I have added together the enrollment in high schools and secondary schools with the attendance on colleges and universities, not being sure of the actual grade of work done in the colleges and universities. The work done in the secondary schools is reported in such detail in this office that there can be no doubt of its grade. He then makes the following comparisons of persons in every million enrolled in secondary and higher education. 1880. Whole country, 4,362. Negroes, 1,289. 1900. Whole country, 10,743. Negroes, 2,061. And he concludes, While the number in colored high schools and colleges had increased somewhat faster than the population, it had not kept pace with the average of the whole country, for it had fallen from 30% to 24% of the average quota. Of all colored pupils, one in 100 was engaged in secondary and higher work, and that ratio has continued substantially for the past 20 years. If the ratio of colored population in secondary and higher education is to be equal to the average for the whole country, it must be increased to five times its present average. And if this be true of the secondary and higher education, it is safe to say that the Negro has not one-tenth his quota in college studies. How baseless, therefore, is the charge of too much training. We need Negro teachers for the Negro common schools, and we need first-class normal schools and colleges to train them. This is the work of higher Negro education, and it must be done. 
further than this after being provided with group leaders of civilization and a foundation of intelligence in the public schools the carpenter in order to be a man needs technical skill this calls for trade schools now trade schools are not nearly such simple things as people once thought the original idea was that the industrial school was to furnish education practically free to those willing to work for it it was to do things i e become a center of productive industry it was to be partially if not wholly self-supporting and it was to teach trades admirable as were some of the ideas underlying this scheme the whole thing simply would not work in practice it was found that if you were to use time and material to teach trades thoroughly you could not at the same time keep the industries on a commercial basis and make them pay many schools started out to do this on a large scale and went into virtual bankruptcy moreover it was found also that it was possible to teach a boy a trade mechanically without giving him the full educative benefit of the process and vice versa that there was a distinctive educative value in teaching a boy to use his hands and eyes in carrying out certain physical processes even though he did not actually learn a trade it has happened therefore in the last decade that a noticeable change has come over the industrial schools in the first place the idea of commercially remunerative industry in a school is being pushed rapidly to the background there are still schools with shops and farms that bring an income and schools that use student labor partially for the erection of their buildings and the furnishing of equipment it is coming to be seen however in the education of the negro as clearly as it has been seen in the education of the youths the world over that it is the boy and not the material product that is the true object of education consequently the object of the industrial school came to be the thorough training of boys regardless of the cost of the training so long as it was thoroughly well done even at this point however the difficulties were not surmounted in the first place modern industry has taken great strides since the war and the teaching of trades is no longer a simple matter machinery and long processes of work have greatly changed the work of the carpenter the iron worker and the shoemaker a really efficient workman must be today an intelligent man who has had good technical training in addition to thorough common school and perhaps even higher training to meet this situation the industrial schools began a further development they established distinct trade schools for the thorough training of better class artisans and at the same time they sought to preserve for the purposes of general education such of the simpler processes of elementary trade learning as were best suited therefore in this differentiation of the trade school and manual training the best of the industrial schools simply followed the plain trend of the present educational epoch a prominent educator tells us that in sweden in the beginning the economic conception was generally adopted and everywhere manual training was looked upon as a means of preparing the children of the common people to earn their living but gradually it came to be recognized that manual training has a more elevated purpose and one indeed more useful in the deeper meaning of the term it came to be considered as an educative process for the complete moral physical and intellectual development of the child thus again in the manning of trade schools and manual training schools 
we are thrown back upon the higher training as its source and chief support there was a time when any aged and worn-out carpenter could teach in a trade school but not so today indeed the demand for college-bred men by a school like tuskegee ought to make mr booker t washington the firmest friend of higher training here he has as helpers the son of a negro senator trained in greek and the humanities and graduated at harvard the son of a negro congressman and lawyer trained in latin and mathematics and graduated at oberlin he has as his wife a woman who read virgil and homer in the same classroom with me he has as college chaplain a classical graduate of atlanta university as teacher of science a graduate of fisk as teacher of history a graduate of smith indeed some thirty of his chief teachers are college graduates and instead of studying french grammars in the midst of weeds or buying pianos for dirty cabins they are at mr washington's right hand helping him in a noble work and yet one of the effects of mr washington's propaganda has been to throw doubt upon the expediency of such training for negroes as these persons have had men of america the problem is plain before you here is a race transplanted through the criminal foolishness of your fathers whether you like it or not the millions are here and here they will remain if you do not lift them up they will pull you down education and work are the levers to uplift a people work alone will not do it unless inspired by the right ideals and guided by intelligence education must not simply teach work it must teach life the talented tenth of the negro race must be made leaders of thought and missionaries of culture among their people no others can do this work and negro colleges must train men for it the negro race like all other races is going to be saved by its exceptional men end of section two recording by james k white chula vista